everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. And we are here for the Invested Podcast, where we're learning about investing rule one style, which is coming from Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, who say there's really only one rule of investing. Oh, actually, they really say there's really only two rules of investing. What are the two rules, Dad? (laughs) Tell us. Tell us right now. Okay. What's the first one? I'm being mocked by my daughter. Rule number one is don't lose money. Rule number two is don't forget rule number one. So there's only one rule of investing. Don't lose money. And strangely, this is taking us quite a long time to figure out because although I've been doing it for 30 (laughs) years, it's still deep, deep, deep digging into why, what do you have to do to not lose money when you're investing, not losing money? Why, Why would focusing on that be the number one thing? And it turns out, that the guys that have made the most money over a long period of time, starting with Ben Graham, then Buffett and Munger, and then all the people that they've taught, um, have done so because they focus on not having a a reduction in their capital. They they Mm. look very carefully at the downside of everything. They look, like Charlie says, that optimism is the enemy of great investing. That that you Mm -hmm. really have to have the recognition that, particularly today, Munger is saying that it's harder to invest today than it ever has been because so much more information is available. So the markets tend to be more efficient in pricing things into the value of a stock. And second, that companies go out of business quicker than they ever used to. That, Mm. you know, back in the 60s, the amount of time that a company tended to stay alive was you know, in the ballpark of, you know, 40, 50, 60 years, a good company would stick around. Um, today, it's like, a you know, 15 years because they get acquired. They get even if they're a good company, they're acquired and they're taken off the market. So, yeah, we just move a lot faster. Yep, Everything in moves so faster. many different ways. Yeah. And that makes it a little harder to figure out the value of things. But the end result of this philosophy is to have us focus on the downside and really try to understand What's the real value of this business? And then we try to wait until we can buy it when the market fluctuates downward, which it does regularly. Sometimes just a little bit, you know, going up and down in 15 to 20% chunks, and sometimes big time fluctuations. And one of the reasons that we're doing this podcast right now is because Warren Buffett has come out recently and said that the market goes through an economic storm about once every 10 years. And it has been 10 years since the last one in 2008. We're in our 10th, we're just starting the 10th year now. And that means that if you prepare correctly for this storm, as Buffett says, get ready to hold out a wash tub because it'll be raining gold. And what he means is real simple. When the market fluctuates big time in a 10 year giant crash, like he's expecting, I think, then prices go down well below the values, down 50% below the values in some cases, some cases even more. And when you can buy something worth $10 and you only pay $5 for it, you are certain to make money. And that's what I want you guys to learn how to do. And so I'm teaching this through an education of my daughter, Danielle, who's a very good attorney and, and has been studying this now for over 120 podcasts. I think we're maybe really getting close to 120. And um, so this very simple thing that you try to, you know, not lose money turns out to be 
simple but not easy we would say it turns out to be simple yet complex in its simplicity like most things worth doing probably Probably and one of the things that i promised we would get to right away today is one of those things that should be simple and yet is complex which is figuring out how to price a company and we've been talking about whole foods and amazon and extensively actually it turns out that Whole Foods and Amazon deal is giving us massive fodder to talk about all of this stuff because we love those companies and we've been trying to figure out how they arrived at the deal that they did. They are paying, Amazon is paying $42 a share for Whole Foods. How did they get to that price? So today what we want to do is do the classic rule number one margin of safety analysis. Right on. So... We start off with um, with the basic numbers that we use to determine the current value of the business. The current value means what somebody should pay for it if they were to buy the whole thing. Now, since we know that Bezos bought it for $42 a share, we're pretty well down the road on what it should be. So let's <laughs> see if we can figure out how they got there. Um, there are four numbers that we talk about in terms of determining the overall future growth rate of the business, which is what we're trying to figure out. Because the value today is just what is the total value of the cash today that this business is going to produce into infinity. And so we're going to discount the future value of this business back to today's at at, at today's price. And what that means is we're going to figure out how this current value of the business will grow, right? We're going to figure out you know, mm-hmm. where it's at right now and how it will grow, um, its earnings and its cash flow and, and its its sales and its equity. We're going to figure out how those four things are going to grow. And then we're going to figure out what the value of the business is, assuming they grow that way. So we're mm-hmm. going to go out 10 years mm-hmm. and figure out the value of the business, which means we're going to need to know what is the earnings of the business in 10 years? What is the... Um, what is the multiple of those earnings that we would expect to pay for a business in 10 years? That's called the P.E. ratio. And what is the future growth rate going to be? Because that'll affect the P.E. ratio uh, 10 years out. Just thinking out loud here. Um, then what is the future value of the earnings is what we're going to calculate, growing them at a certain growth rate uh, for the future. And then we're going to discount that back to today using some kind of discount rate, which means what we call my minimum acceptable rate of return. So we're going to use a number that says, if we have a company worth $1,000 in 10 years, and I want to buy that today, what should I pay for that $1,000? In other words, I'm going to collect $1,000 in 10 years. So what, do, what should I pay for that today? And the answer that we're going to give you straight out is, is a fixed answer, is we should discount that $1,000 every year back to today at 15% per year, which means that... Done. 15%. No more discussion. No more discussion. Okay, so that'll okay. take a big variable <laughs> out of the picture because that number moves around according to interest rates. It moves around according to... what people think about the economy. But we're just going to put a fairly sizable number in here so that we're quite confident that if we can buy companies at this discount rate, 
we're getting a pretty good deal and we'll get 15% per year, which is a decent rate of return, right? Not earth 15% per year? Yeah. Yeah. So let's look at a thousand, let's look at a thousand dollars just for an example. All right. So 10 years from now, we're going to sell this business for a thousand dollars. Now we're just stipulating that. I'm uh -huh. just saying, okay. If we were going to do that, how much should we pay for it today? And the answer is you do some complex mathematics and you determine, you know, every year if I want to make 15%, what do I have to pay for it today in order that every year that grows by 15% and ends up being $1,000. And it turns yes. out that if you do it on a 10-year basis and you want 15%, all you got to do is divide that $1,000 by four. And it'll give that you the right That is true. Number. I looked the math up and that is accurate. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it is involving some, com not horribly complex mathematics, but like, you know, some parentheses and some divide, divide uh, some exponents, some dividing of the exponents and blah, blah, blah. And, and it turns out to be, it's years. all like fancy. And then it's like, and that works out to four on the bottom. Yeah. So basically you just divide your number by four, which is great. I'll take it. Yeah. So that's 250 bucks. So we know that if you buy this today for 250 and you sell it in 10 years for 1000 you will make a 15% compounded annual return, which is our target minimal return. That's what we want to get minimum. Now, if that's what we want to get minimum, and that's what we think is the real value of the business today, because that's that it, you got to get more than 3%, right? If you're going to put your money in stocks, come on. There's risk of stuff happening that yeah. could cause you to lose money, as we know, right? So, you know, competitors will knock you out or your management team turns to be a bunch of mercenaries and whatever, you don't get the fifth, you don't get the return. So you can't just accept a 3% return or a 5% return or a 6% return. There's way more risk than that level of return could justify. So we need to get a much higher return. We've just stipulated 15% is it, okay? Okay. Good. So if we get that, we're happy. Now, we want to get better than that. So we're going to say that's what the thing's worth today. If everything goes right, if everything goes right, that's what it'll be worth today. So we're going to show you where yeah. those numbers come in on Whole Foods. Like everything. We get the growth rate right. The future growth rate's going to be great. The company's going to continue to do well 10 years and more. And the management team is all good and nothing bad happens and no competitors kill you. All that stuff. We're going to assume everything goes right. The trouble is if you buy companies assuming everything's going to go right, you're going to be wrong some of the time. And when you're wrong, you could be wrong big. Therefore, Ben Graham, 85 years ago, said the three most important words of investing are margin of safety. You gotta have yeah. a margin of safety. You gotta discount the current value and get a deal. Now the catch is the only time you're gonna get a deal like that is if the market itself has a big fluctuation or the company has a big problem. In other words, the economy goes through a big recession or the company's industry goes through a big change or something. Something has to happen. There has to be a well blow up in the Gulf of Mexico. There's gotta be a freeze up of all the financial assets. There's got to be to stuff do what to to cause the market to have enough fear about the future of this company, at least on the short term, that they sell off everything. And that drops the price well below that already pretty conservative price 
that we determined using a 15% margin of, or 15% minimum acceptable rate of return. So we want a discount to that of 50% is what we're targeting below that. So if we take our $1,000, which we could buy today for 250 and get a 15% return, we want to actually buy that for 125. Got it. Okay. So what you're saying is the, and you're kind of skipping to the end of this whole uh, valuation formula, but okay. So just to be clear to everybody, we are skipping to the end and we will go back. I promise. Cause my questions are all about the beginning of the formula. So you take the ultimate 10 year price, the price in 10 years that you've calculated through this part that we skipped. Right. And then, and we're, we're saying that that's a thousand dollars in this example, dividing it by four, because that's how the 15% rate of return works out to, which equals a price in 10 years of $250. A price today of $250. A price today of $250. That you will sell for a thousand in 10 years. I see, I see, I see. Okay. So this $250 is what we'll pay now for the future $1,000 per share price. Right. But you're saying that that calculation is only the preliminary answer because that's just the straight up, here's what it should actually be. And we want to leave a decent amount of room in the price we pay to have other bad things happen. So you're, you then discount it by another 50% in order to have basically a crazy enormous margin of safety, Correct. which gives us a price we will pay for this imaginary company of $125. Correct. You got it. Got you it. Got it. And so that'll, that'll account for a lot of what Charlie calls the vicissitudes of life. The vicissitudes of the, the life. things you don't, the challenges you don't see coming. <clears throat> so <laughs> our first price we call the sticker price. That's the 250 We just call that the sticker like the, you know, the price they put on the car, on the car window, the sticker price. And we say, we call it that just to remind ourselves to never pay sticker. Now, the catch is we're always going to pay sticker if, if we are trying to invest in all kinds of markets. We're just always, most of the time, the markets are pretty pricey and you're gonna end up paying the sticker. So <clears throat> we don't wanna do that. That means we have to be very patient and wait for a big problem to create fear. And the big problem that we're waiting for, ideally, is a problem that affects the entire economy of the United States, which would be a recession. Now, that means that the, there's a business cycle that the United States economy goes through on a regular basis that lasts between five and eight to 10 years. Five, let's call it five to 10 years. That business cycle starts with an expanding of credit. So more people can borrow money. They borrow the money and buy stuff, which becomes somebody's increased salary. They get more credit because they got a bigger salary and they buy more stuff. And it's a very positive effect on the economy. Um, but the amount of debt goes up rapidly over a five to 10 year period of time until it gets to be scary for the banks and the lenders who then tighten up on the credit by raising interest rates. And as they raise those rates, the marginal borrowers can no longer get credit to replace their old credit and they have to pay it off. 
And there's, you go through this rebalancing, <clears throat> which causes the economy to shrink as these people start paying off debt instead of consuming. And that lack of consumption means somebody loses their job and they stop consuming. And then there's less credit, less debt, less credit, less jobs, less money. And you go into what's called a recession. And that recession yes. continues until uh, the banks feel like they want to stimulate bar buying, in which case they begin to lower interest rates again. And none of that has happened yet. And yet somehow we're talking about Whole Foods and <laughs> we're still in the theory part. We're still in the theory part. And the theory and part is is that this comes no, along no, no, but regularly. What you're what you're talking about is a market wide event and yes. what happened with Whole Foods is more of a industry wide event, I would say. I mean you could say it's even just a company event, but uh, I would argue the grocery industry is struggling. Well, we're not so, we're not looking at an event that put it on sale because it didn't it wasn't on sale. It, it it was purchased at a set price. So that could happen any time in the cycle of, you know, inflation, deflation, growth, recession. So it's just that Amazon came in and bought it for 42 bucks. What I was was I was trying to get to was that if we're looking at being a rule one type investor, a Buffett style investor, then you want to keep your powder dry. You want to keep cash until you have this natural fluctuation of the market that would mm -hmm. put even a Whole Foods on sale. Even an mm -hmm. Amazon might go on sale if you get a big enough fluctuation. And these come along regularly. So that's the basic strategy that we work with is why, why would we ever be able to buy a great company at a super cheap price, 50% below what it's worth conservatively? And the answer is because something major happens, right? Some big event. Now, in this particular case, there's no big event. And Amazon just came in and paid up. They paid full price for, for this company, we're going to assume. I think they're, I don't know if you'd call it an event, but Amazon, not Amazon, Whole Foods was struggling and their price had dropped considerably from its high a few years ago. So in my mind, it was having an event, an event of we are not sure where this company is going, an event of we're not sure how to compete anymore in our industry, an event of we haven't quite planned properly for the online lack of brick and mortar retail, uh, general retail situation that we find ourselves in. They were trying to expand into online ordering and weren't doing a great job of it. I think Whole Foods was having, I don't know if you would call it an event, but to me it was. Yeah, arguably they were. And what what that resulted in was a hedge fund came in and began buying up the stock. And I, yes. I imagine they started buying it, you know, roughly when you did, you know, 28, 29, 30, 31. They're buying up yeah. the stock. Well, it stayed around felt, those prices for quite a long time. It did. and and they, and they And since the price had been... 50 to 60 before, yeah. you could argue just based on the stock price, this would be an incorrect type of argument, but you could, and many hedge funds do, especially if they believe in efficient market theory and that the price of the company is its value, then they would look and say, well, it had a value of 60 and now it's got a value of 30, but it could go back to 60 if we fix it. And that's yeah. what they were thinking is that I we think can, that's what they were thinking. We can fix this up and sell it to somebody. Yeah. We just got to get yeah. rid of this John Mackey guy. 
<laughs> so, considering that the price was hovering around 30 and they and Amazon bought Whole Foods at 42, we want to understand why that is. Yep. Why is there a discrepancy between those numbers? Yep. So, and what I want to know because the Whole Foods numbers are very interesting when you look at them. They yep. have been all over the place. Yep. And so the very first thing that we do with margin of safety analysis is figure out what our windage growth rate is. And the windage growth rate is a word that dad and I basically made up because we couldn't figure out how to describe how he figures out his growth rate. So basically, you look at the growth rate of the big four numbers. Dad, what are the big four numbers? So the big four numbers are the the four numbers that come through, the four major numbers you have to learn about um, that come through the financial statements. The first two come off the income statement, which is your profit and loss. They tell you um, how much money you made. That's called the P&L or profit and loss statement or income statement. And the first number on the income statement is the top line revenue or sales. So that's the maximum dollars you got in the door by selling all your stuff or your products or your services. <clears throat> so we want to know how are sales growing? Are, what's the growth rate of sales over time? The second okay. number on the income statement is the bottom line number, which is called net earnings. So we want to know what earnings are doing growing over time. So those two numbers come off of the income statement. The balance sheet has a kind of bottom line, it's the way balance sheets are structured, it's almost about bottom line, but not quite, called equity. So we wanna know what is the growth of equity over time. That's the amount of ownership you have in the net assets. In other words, you take the assets, you subtract the liabilities and what you have left, are net assets or equity, also known as book value. So that's what kind of the minimum value of the business should be as a dead business or something we call a zombie. It's alive, but you can only, you, it's bare, it, basically it's dead, but it's walking. That would be a company in bankruptcy, say, and they just sell off everything and you hope to get the equity out of the business. So okay. that's the book value growth rate. We call it book value growth rate. And then the, the final one is maybe the most important one, which is called the cash flow growth rate. Cash flow in public companies is different than the earnings. In, in just normal life, like your balance, you know, you, you keep track of your checkbook, your, what you make as income, what you spend as expenses, you can do your own family, um, your own family profit and loss. Your, your profit and loss, your, your so-called earnings would also be your cash flow. Um, but there's a lot of fancy accounting that goes on with generally accepted accounting principles with public companies. And it turns out that really earnings and sales and expenses are all somewhat fictional. That is, you can book things as a sale, even though you haven't gotten paid for them. And you can write off stuff that you haven't actually paid for the expenses. So they call this accrual accounting. There's good reasons why they would use it. But they want to have one more financial statement that actually reconciles the cash that you have in the bank with all of these uh, with your profit and loss. So they do that in what's called the cash flow statement. And the number that we're looking for there is called operating cash flow. And we're looking at the growth of operating cash flow over time. Operating cash flow being the actual cash that moves through the business. You don't look at free cash flow. 
We I do. We've talked before about looking at free cash flow in that section. We do, but we we have to calculate free cash flow. It's not yeah, we do. a gap accounting number. So yeah. generally accepted accounting principles don't look at free cash flow. But free cash flow is really easy. Free cash flow is simply the operating cash flow minus the purchase of property and equipment. So also known as capital expenditures. So the stuff that you buy that you can't write off, then you subtract that from your operating cash flow. And what you have left is called free cash flow. Right. So which one do you want us to use? Operating cash or free cash? Well, just for just for general purposes here, let, let's let's use operating cash because it's easy to find. Okay. And let's make the I assumption. like to use free cash flow. Well, free cash flow is the better number. Okay. There you Absolutely. go. <laughs> free cash flow. That's is... the real answer. So the real answer <laughs> is free cash flow is the better number, but operating cash is easier to find because it's straight on the statement. So you don't exactly. have to do any extra work. Exactly. So when I was writing about this for in rule one and, and payback time, I had to send people to MSN money to get their data because it was free and they had the data. And they didn't produce a free yeah. cash flow number. So I just used operating No, cash I mean, flow. I use, as you have said many times, I like to use the the uh, annual reports straight from the SEC to make sure that I have exactly the right information. Yeah. And yeah, you don't get free cash flow on the uh, financial statements. No, so. but it, it, it is by far the best number to use when you're trying to calculate how a company is doing. The problem with free cash flow is that it can be very, very up and down depending on, you know, I mean, companies don't necessarily buy the same amount of, of equipment and property every year. They might buy stuff once every four or five years and have a big lumpy free cash flow number. So, yeah. you know, every every five years you you build a new plant, but you then the other four years you're looking like you got a ton of free cash flow. So we would do is we, we like to average free cash flow over a long period of time as a percentage of net earnings. And we put that on the tool on the toolbox in the valuation page where we can just see what the percentage of net earnings are that turn into free cash flow. Some companies, it might be 50 percent. Some companies, it might be 120 percent at rule1investing.com. And okay. then you click on toolbox and it'll give you access for a free month of, of playing with the tools. Um, All right, so, so let's recap the big four numbers because I find these to be difficult to remember. Okay, so um, go ahead. So from the income statement, the top line, revenue or sales, the bottom line, net earnings, then the balance sheet has the book value or equity. Those two things, I can never remember that they're related. Book value, I totally get. Calling it equity just confuses me to death because that to me says number of shares, but whatever accountants. And then the last one is cash flow statement and you go to look for operating cash or if you do a little extra work, you can figure out the free cash flow um, by subtracting the purchase of property and equipment from the operating cash. Well yeah? done. Well done. Beautifully Thank done. Thank you. Thank you very much. Beautifully done. Now, those things... Fairly straightforward. All you do is download the PDF from the SEC. There are the numbers. I can do that. Here's the hard part. The windage growth rate. How do you get from those numbers to the windage growth rate? That's what I want to know because this company has numbers. Whole Foods has company has numbers all over the bloody map. And it, it, 
so the windage growth rate we decided. I initially thought that what you did was you averaged all the growth rates, but that is not what you do. What you do is you look at them and then you you use your own judgment and decide what you think the growth rate should be, which is why we call it the windage growth rate. Because what windage is like a it's like a shooting term, right? Right. It's it's the amount the thing's going to blow just the bullet's going to blow just from the wind that's out there, and. And you have to account for the windage when you do your aiming. Yes. So right yes. now, with our growth rate choice, we're trying to account for the windage. And the windage, in our aim. the windage of a company is is that what the future is going to bring. So yeah. ultimately, these numbers, looking out the back window of the car, another analogy, looking out the back window of the car to look at the the road we've traveled, will give us an idea of what the future road might look like, right? If we're in a bunch of windy curves, we might be staying in windy curves. If we're on a really straight road looking out the back, it might be straight in the front. But it certainly doesn't mean it has to be. And with businesses, yeah. it certainly doesn't have to be. The The future can be very different than the past. Buffett sometimes quips that if all you had to do to figure out the future growth rate of the company is to look at the past, then all librarians would be rich. Well, so we have a lot of variability in these four growth rates. And what we really need to do is to look at the future and see what's the future growth going to be. That's the only one that counts. The one that already has gone by, that doesn't count at all. So it's well, the And future. by the way, let me just let me just add about the growth rates. The I mean, unless you have your website gives the growth rate year over year. Yep. But um, I have not really found a way to have somebody give them to me for free. Have you? Now, the, especially when you have to compile them year after year. So, no. Um, some websites like Morningstar have the growth per year, year after year after year after year. But you have to do your own work. You have to do it on an Excel spreadsheet if you're not going to use a website like ours where yeah. you get a compiled number of years. And the reason we do a compiled number of years, and by that I mean we're going to look at a five-year average of growth on each one of these or a seven-year average of growth or a 10-year average of growth. The reason we look over a period of time is precisely because even well-run businesses have a lot of variability based on what the economy is doing, based on what their industry is doing in that economy. And so, you know, you might have oil prices ranging from $40 to $120, right? That can be a huge difference year to year in what's going on. Yeah. So you want to take a real long view when you're looking at these companies. It's one of the reasons we like to have at least 10 years of, of business data available to us before we buy a company because we want to see it through the cycles and by cycles we mean that business cycle we talked about of you know growth to recession so um in this case the the numbers that we're looking at on the growth rate um, are indeed massively variable depending on what uh what set of years we're looking at and we're going to dive into that um, but I want to mention one more really important set of numbers before we we wrap things up today. And we're going to get okay. deep into the numbers in the next in the next session. Um, and that is the return on equity and return on invested capital and the amount of debt that the company has. Because <clears throat> return on wait equity, now you're getting away from margin of safety analysis. Yes and no. I'm still in uh, a view of where the future is going for this company in order to okay. come up with my growth rate. 
And so oh, one, of the things, okay. one of the things I need to look at for this sort of windage growth rate, no longer looking out the back window of the car, is, is, is the debt on this company becoming oppressive that it would really affect the earnings of the business in the future? How's the debt look compared to earnings? And then also, what return on earnings on, on, on our equity do we get? I mean, we've got a certain amount of money locked in this company. What's our return there? And then what's our return if we also add in the debt? How are we doing uh, making money? So you're that? saying like in order to make that judgment, that informed decision about what growth rate we're going to go with, you got to know if we're looking at something we think should be kind of optimistic or a little bit more pessimistic. Yeah, exactly. And so if, for example, we have return on equity, which is the earnings of the company divided by the equity of the company, if we have that very consistent over many periods of time, 10 years, seven years, five years average, three years average, one year average, we look at all that and it's almost all the same all the time. That can be an indication of a very, very well-run company, particularly mm. if that number is high, a very well-run company that in spite of the variability of the growth rates of book value and sales and earnings and so on, this company has a real consistency to it mm. that we mm -hmm. may be mm -hmm. able to project into the future. So that's what I'm going to do with Whole Foods. I'm going to look at these numbers and I'm going to say, man, these guys have increased their return on equity. They are their their uh, return on invested capital has been steady. Um, they've got a little bit of debt, not a lot of debt. These guys are making sixteen percent a year on my money. Is that right. what you're saying from the return on invested capital number? That's the actually that's the uh, return on equity. So my money return is on the equity, equity number. Okay. Re invested capital is my money plus the debt that they borrowed. So I'm going to look at what are they doing with my money? And what they're doing with my money is killing it. They've got 16% return on my money, which is really, really good. Now, part of that is juiced by the fact that they got some credit, right? They got, they got money they borrowed, and they're making money on that. And so we got to look at the return on invested capital, which is running right now in the 12 to 13% range. So they're making 12 to 13% in a grocery store. Even though their earnings are going down, even though they're getting all this squeeze from other people, they're still yeah. killing it. Yeah. They're killing yeah. it. Okay, so yeah. now we want to look at, all right, what's this business worth? If we assume that this they're going to go through fluctuations, now they're going to have Amazon money, which is huge, behind them to open up stores, to begin home delivery, to do all the things. I mean, honestly, if Whole Foods could get me food coming down from their store to me, their store's an hour away from me. If mm -hmm. they would deliver an hour, I would just buy Whole Foods all day long. That's what I would do. Right now, they don't get my business because they're too far away. Mm -hmm. Well, home mm -hmm. delivery could solve that problem for me. So if they start really picking this up with Amazon backing them, what kind of future does it look like they'll have? How will they grow? So that's what we're going to look at next time, which I'm real excited to do. Great, because I still want to figure out our windage growth rate. I'm very, well, that's very what we got to figure out. That's exactly yeah, what we're exactly. going to do. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay, cool. All right. And we got to do that in order to understand why Jeff Bezos paid $42 for a company that was only selling for $32 in the market. Exactly. All right. He came up with his own windage growth rate. Exactly, he did. 
Okay, good. So let's talk about that next time. Until then, all right. time to go play. Thanks, everybody. Bye. See ya. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Head over to investedpodcast.com for our show notes and a special offer on how the podcast listeners can attend my three-day transformational investing workshop for free, where we just teach the heck out of you for three straight days. We don't sell anything and we get you a scholarship to come to it for free. So come on over there and take a look at that. And by the way, as our lawyers want me to say, everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion, my opinion's right, and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So this podcast is just for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it. So until next time, time to go play.